Okay. Uh, my, my job is to uh, run a program here where we make maximum use of our time and uh, that I keep the uh, uh, presenters uh, in line. So my uh, wonderful new BlackBerry has a timer on it, and uh, it's going to be sitting right here where the uh, speakers can see it. And uh, I think 20 minutes each should be about right. That will leave some time left over for some discussion. I would like the speakers to uh, come up in the order in which they're listed. So I'm not going to introduce them. Their uh, bios are available to you. And we'll just do it in the order that they are listed. Uh, Carmen Reinhardt first, uh, Jerry O'Driscoll second, and uh, Adam Posen third. And so, Carmen, it's all yours. Well, thank you for having me here. And Can you present up here? Oh, of course. Press present up here. Okay. And then we'll take questions down there. Okay, so here's your timer. All right. Okay, thank you for having me here. Um, just a little note, I um, have moved from the University of Maryland. I'm now at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. <laughs> um, I'm going to try to, in the interest of time, I have, I was told I have 15 minutes, which means I'm going to have 20 minutes. Uh, but <laughs> okay, good. Okay, um, and I'm going to divide my remarks into essentially three parts, which broadly define. Uh, I would uh, try to take on the forward-looking issue of monetary policy and what role do asset prices play in the design and implementation of monetary policy. That part is forward-looking. The second part of my remarks is backward-looking and answers directly the question posed for the panel, which is, did monetary policy contribute to the asset price bubble uh, and the financial crisis that began in 2007? And uh, the third part um, is just some broader reflections about where um, um, financial the inner the interplay between monetary policy and and uh, financial regulation that will be very brief. Um, let me begin by saying that I think in terms of the current conjuncture our big the big point i 'd like to make is that our problem here in the United States and elsewhere is a fiscal problem. It is a debt overhang problem of biblical proportions. Um, and it, 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 if you will allow me the uh, prototype of a financial crisis, I've looked at many financial crises in my uh, work over the course of many years, and the prototype is a financial innovation or liberalization occurs, this leads to a boom in borrowing. And during that boom period where economic activity is strong, where credit is, is ample, asset prices boom. Uh, and uh, during that period is actually where monetary policy could sink teeth in to prevent the leverage problem. I concur very much, which what was said, that the leverage problem is the essential problem more than the 
asset uh, prices. So that I would characterize that first leg as a surge in private borrowing. Surge in private borrowing, the crisis occurs. As the crisis occurs, fiscal finances deteriorate markedly, irrespective of whether you have bailouts or whether you have stimulus packages. Revenues suffer a great deal. Fiscal finances deteriorate, and they also deteriorate because what were private debts before the crisis start becoming public debts after the crisis, and the government's balance sheet begins to expand at a dramatic rate. Nowhere more is that more evident than in Ireland, which was a country that had very, by any metric, international standard historically, had very modest government debt to GDP, had very uh, solid footing in its fiscal finances, and now we're looking at 30% deficits to GDP, which are pretty unheard of uh, for, for that country, certainly. Uh, and large by any historic metric. So uh, we go from a surge in debt that is predominantly private to a surge in debt that is predominantly public, and now we just have the aftermath of a surge in debt. Uh, And so the the question of monetary policy, without any, you know, I'm married to a former central banker and so on, but without due respect, monetary policy is really a second-tier problem here uh, relative to the massive debt overhang issue uh, that we are facing. And the question is, of course, when you have a big debt overhang, historically it has been dealt uh, by three ways. One is plain good luck and you grow your way out of it. Good luck. Uh, That outcome is rare. Uh, The second is you deal with the debt problem through a combination of debt restructuring, if not outright default, and uh, fiscal uh, austerity. That is not pretty. In effect, none of the outcomes except the low probability growth one are pretty. Or you indirectly uh, use monetary, very accommodative monetary policy to inflate away part of the debt liabilities, uh, which was also very effectively done, if I may add, in the aftermath of World War II uh, in not just the United States, but the U.K., which had debt-to-GDP ratios of over 230 percent. So what, what do we do? What did Vincent and I do in this paper? Vincent Reinhardt and I, uh, um, to... To take a summary of our policy stance is um, on our policy stance, we would say that uh, as far as targets, asset prices are something that should be watched, but that the real killer, the real emphasis of policy should be on leverage, debt cycles. Debt cycles are the constant recurring feature of financial crises. Um, and that is what gets us into trouble and with a long, dark aftermath. Uh, now, instruments of monetary policy, I th- and we will argue this in the second and almost last part of my presentation, which is um, there is the issue of short-term interest rates as being the wherewithal of monetary policy, and we, be- we basically want to get too much for too little. This is a common problem. You know, you want to have uh, too few instruments for too many targets. And I think 
the, ba the basic message that we would suggest is that if monetary policy is going to be used towards crisis prevention, uh, looking beyond short-term interest rates and being very old-fashioned, I mean the old dead things like margin requirements uh, that haven't really been used uh, counter-cyclically, uh, and we can call them what we want, but uh, any measures that quantitatively also puts, and I use the term deliberately, quantitatively breaks uh, surges in, in private borrowing are also to be looked at very seriously. If we're not going to reexamine the uh, kind of monetary policy under the broader mandate of financial stability at a time right after crisis, if we can't re-examine that now and say, okay, beyond the control of short-term interest rates, that's great and fine, but as I will argue later, short-term interest rates only do so much. Uh, you uh, need to look closely at other instruments that are more directly connected to cycles in lending. So what about the backward-looking part, meaning historic component of our paper? Uh, there I would characterize our findings as the overestimate underestimate problem. The overestimate problem is we overestimate the influence of short-term rates in asset prices. We overestimate that. Let me explain that further. There is also a handout in which I will only refer you to four figures if you have the handout. If you don't have it, it's not a big deal. But the basic thrust of our empirical exercise is to go back to 1914 and examine periods of easing and tightening. And we break down the sample into periods of tightening and periods of easing. And we look at asset prices, including the Case-Shiller uh, Housing Price Index, which goes back to the late 1800s. Um, and we try to uh, put forth a picture of what are the main differences in asset prices between periods of monetary expansion and periods of contraction. And that would be figure two, which is shown in page five of your handout. The bottom line is Thank you. there is a significant difference between periods of easing and periods of tightening in equity market performance. But when you extend that to look at long-term yields on treasuries, and you extend that to look at capital gains or losses in real estate, there is no systematic historical relationship that one can point to. Um, and that is something that I really uh, think, so, so we, we, in the, we overestimate how, how much influence we can exert by controlling short-term interest rates. What we underestimate is the role of the external sector. Um, globally, let, think of the following picture. It starts in 1800 and it ends in 2010. From 1800, there's a relatively flat period of globalization. In 1860, globalization surges, financial integration surges. It peaks in around World War I. World War I gives it the first hit and it comes down. But it's still quite vibrant in the 20s after World War I. Then comes the Depression. 
and we become more inward-looking. Then comes World War II, and we really become inward-looking. Well, monetary policy is being conducted as if we were in that post-World War II period, where we essentially have a closed economy. In between, between 1840, uh, 1948 and the early 60s, foreign exchange reserves, world central bank foreign exchange reserves as a percent of U.S. GDP were between 4 and 10 percent. Okay, in the mid-1990s, that began to escalate to 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent. It's about 50 percent. We cannot pretend that we can conduct monetary policy in autarky. And I think this is a point that we try to, uh, if you look at the purchases in QE1 and QE2, and you compare that to the size of the purchase of treasuries by foreign central banks, the latter swamp the former. And uh, this is something that's quantifiable. It is not an opinion. Uh, So we underestimate the global availability of credit. And the U.S., like every other country that has run large current account deficits, was importing a lot of capital. It was borrowing from abroad in industrial quantities uh, over many years, as did the U.K., as did Ireland, as did Spain, as did Greece, large capital inflows historically have ended badly. But a not-so-polite way of saying large capital inflows goes back to the debt story. It is a surge in indebtedness that's being financed by borrowing from abroad. So so what, what does this mean? It means that it is difficult to argue that if the federal funds rate was 50 basis points higher or 100 basis points higher, or even 150 basis points higher, that we could have avoided this crisis. Uh, We were borrowing uh, in uh, ways that are very reminiscent, actually, and this is the, uh, because one kind way of saying we overestimate the impact of domestic monetary policy and underestimate uh, the impact of the rest of the world is another way of saying we combine arrogance and ignorance. Um, And uh, the ignorance part is that if you look historically And if you look internationally, these major credit-fueled financial crises have occurred with fixed exchange rates, with crawling pegs, with the gold standard, with floating rates, and they have spanned inflation targeting and no inflation targeting. The point I am making is these credit-fueled asset price bubbles that have ended badly, have encompassed most of the monetary regimes that I know about, except one. Uh, The very inward-looking, highly regulated financial markets that we had in the 50s and 60s, which eroded in the 70s. I'm losing part of my clothing. Um, um, 
the, the, the very controlled domestic and financial environment actually was a period of relatively, relatively low incidence of financial crises. And so a lot of the uh, – let, let me point out – how much do I have? Uh, a little over five minutes. Okay. So let me point out that using the 50s and 60s and early 70s, where we were in essentially, like all other countries, in pretty much domestic autarky as a measure of setting monetary policy is not particularly helpful for the current global environment, which what central banks do in Asia matter for U.S. credit availability. Uh, let me Let me – Put that even more dramatically. In figure three of our handout, we actually show the rolling correlation between the federal funds rate and uh, long-term treasury yields and the mortgage interest rate, the long-term mortgage interest rate. Those correlations in the late – in the mid to 1990s – start really drifting towards zero and, in effect, actually become negative over a short interval, still not statistically significant. Again, the point that I want to drive home is that uh, we place too much emphasis on what monetary policy, specifically what short-term interest rates, can deliver. Uh, Where does this leave us going forward? I think going forward, if we are, first of all, let us say, let let me divide my remarks into what should be and what I think is. Perhaps I should start with with what I think is. Uh, The last time the, the, the world, the advanced economies as a whole, were mired in this much debt was at the end of World War II. Okay? It wasn't just the U.S., it was the U.K., it was Australia, it was Europe at large. And what was the outcome? Well, there was something called Bretton Woods in 1946. And Bretton Woods really introduced the height of what is called financial repression. Uh, Financial repression, which sounds like I'm going to talk about Bolivia in the 1980s. I'm not. Uh, Financial repression actually has three pillars. Pillars. It has a big chunk of directed credit, and it's directed to the government. It has directly or indirectly the aim of keeping interest rate low, and that importantly is achieved by creating captive audiences uh, where governments don't worry about rollover risk. And the third component, it is very inward-looking meaning that you start getting restrictions to international capital mobility. I'm not saying we're turning the clock back in those three dimensions to what we saw in the 50s, but I think that's the direction we're going. Uh, Because there are going to be convenient ways of trying to fund the deficit. Uh, And how do you fund the deficit uh, when you don't want to raise taxes? Uh, when you don't want to live up to the fact that retirement age may have to rise dramatically. Uh, Well, you start doing it in all these indirect ways, including monetary policy. Uh, And so to 
uh, it's, this is not very uplifting, but I think it's, it's, it's fairly accurate to say that the world, the advanced economies are mired in debt and that financial repression was actually a very effective tool in financing, generating revenue equivalents to liquidate those debts. And it wasn't done with uh, bursts in inflation. It was done through a combination of keeping interest rates low, of lowering the market component or the market signal because there were large pools of, of uh, domestic uh, holders of government debt where market signals were not playing a role. Um, and it was done also by more inward-looking, um, you don't call it capital controls, that's a bad name, okay? Uh, but you start calling it prudential regulations and you can sell almost anything. Uh, and so it, I am not expecting the financial repression bill of 2011. Uh, I'm not suggesting that, but I think the direction, that is the direction where it's going, including as perhaps the Fed and other central banks, I'd love to hear more on that, starts moving towards targeting lower in interest rates that are out further out there in the yield curve. So it's not just about trying to keep short-term rates low, but to try to deal more with median to long-term uh, rates of return. And my time is up, so I will conclude by saying that one thing that I would like to leave on the table uh, if the talk is about crisis prevention and avoiding future asset bubbles is looking at some old-fashioned distasteful, yes, but effective measures of curbing lending uh, as the boom takes off. Because right now in this conjuncture that we're in, we really don't have pretty choices. So what we should be asking is what kinds of checks on leverage and checks on credit uh, we should be thinking about uh, to prevent this, at least for the short term or the medium term, from happening again. get started. Okay. My time has begun. Thanks uh, to Jim Dore and to Cato for having me here. Uh, I'm happy to come back to this conference and speak about the issue of uh, the role of money in bubbles. And uh, the director, the title of the session is Monetary Policy Responsible for Bubbles. And my answer in my paper, which of course is longer than my talk, uh, is an emphatic yes, but not only monetary policy. Real factors played an important part in the housing boom and bust, so I have this kind of three-ring circus that goes on in this paper, multi-ring circus. Um, I, first, I do begin by examining monetary policy, and I, I spend a third of the paper on that issue for some of the reasons that have already come out this morning. Next, I consider uh, how accounting and credit rating firms facilitated the boom, and then I turn briefly to housing policy, because that's kind of the background set of policies against which this all played out. Now, um, finally, I, I hope if I have time, I'll deal with the issue of regulation. Now, the Fed conducts monetary policy by purchasing assets in order to affect interest rates. 
It could do so in other ways. It could famously do so, as Chairman Menanke says, by dropping currency from helicopters, but that's not what it does. Now, when the Fed engages in open market purchases of securities, it changes the path of interest rates and the intertemporal allocation of resources. Um, <clears throat> now, in principle, and I'm going to get right into what uh, Professor Reinhardt just said, but let me just get my point across. In principle, interest rates affect allocation across all markets. In a two-period model, the interest rate is just a, there's the interest rate, and it's a relative price between present and future consumption. In a world of many interest rates, uh, we're talking about a whole array of relative prices for each time period that can, in principle, be affected by monetary policy. And if I have to say so, throughout the discussion, when I say an interest rate, I mean a real interest rate unless I say differently. So in the parlance of economists, money is non-neutral and in many important respects. Now, uh, it's strange that I take – some may think it's strange that I take this position because uh, everybody associates me with Hayek, and he's famous for his dictum that prices convey uh, information, that it's price signals that equilibrate markets. But that was only half his message. The other half of his message is monetary policy and other policies can interfere with price signals. They can add noise to price signals, and now prices misallocate resources. Uh, that's, that's the part of his work, by the way, that he won the Nobel Prize for. Um, okay. Now, a monetary policy that pushes interest rates below those consistent with intertemporal plan coordinations raises the apparent value of long live assets and productive processes requiring a long time to fruition. Buildings and construction are preeminent examples of such assets and processes. They take a long time to produce, and they, and they produce their services once they're built over a long period of time. By the end of the 19th century, it was a commonplace among economists of all uh, schools of thought uh, to link uh, interest rate movements, and particularly construction industries. Now, if you read this older literature, housing, residential homes, were never discussed much in this, and the reason was that modern mortgage finance didn't exist, and, and, and housing was a kind of separated market, part of this financial repression perhaps, for instance, until recent modern times, commercial banks didn't make mortgage loans. Um, the modern mortgage finance as we know it is a comparatively recent development. If you go as recently as the SNL crisis of the 1980s, savings and loans, thrifts, and then uh, what was a separate crisis but related to it, the Texas banking crisis, and then later the New England banking crisis, um, what was mainly being stimulated what was mainly uh, uh, the asset bubble was occurring in commercial real estate. It didn't yet have this system where these asset bubbles played out so directly in the housing market. Um, in my paper, I actually deal, and if, I think the paper's been handed out, so it's pages five and six of my paper, with the problem that Professor Reinhardt raises, which is, uh, she raises several problems, actually. One is... Well, what is the short-term interest rate that would choke off an asset bubble? Well, as the asset bubble progresses, the natural rate actually is rising. So the short-term rate that takes, and I, and I have a computation in there, a little example that I borrow from Hayek, you start out with a 4% rate uh, that makes a project worthwhile, and by the time the project's about to be completed, if it's almost completed, 
12 percent would be the interest rate that would stop the project. So the, it's a dynamic process where if you begin, allow an asset uh, bubble to begin, it's going to take more and more central bank effort to choke it off. So that, of course, the bottom, my bottom line is don't let one get started. It's what uh, Jerry Jordan said in his, in his talk. The way to deal with uh, uh, the collapse of asset bubbles is, is not to have uh, asset bubbles. So I make the case that actually we had just the most extraordinarily easy monetary policy in terms of interest rates. Uh, I mean, it's historically unprecedented. If you go through uh, the 19th century, the Bank of England, uh, from the end of the Napoleonic Wars until the eve of World War I, uh, only very occasionally did the bank rate, the equivalent of the federal funds rate, touch 2%, and it never stayed there any length of time. In fact, there was an old dictum, John Bull can stand a lot of things, but not 2% on his money. Um, and, of course, the price record is very clear. The price level starting at the end of the Napoleonic Wars and ending on the eve of World War I was approximately the same uh, beginning to end. By the way, the, the, the bank rate was exactly the same beginning to end. <laughs> Uh, so that, that's stability. To think that you can have a fiat money system and play with push monetary policy to have interest rates below what can be sustained under a gold standard where you have long-run price expectations anchored firmly is to ignore history. And just to remind everybody here, the Fed funds rate was a 2% or below for three years, and it was 1% for a year. Okay. Now, markets rely, and, and, and this was a whole third of my paper, so, uh, but I've got to move on to the other parts. Markets rely on various sources of information, not just prices. I've argued that monetary policy disturbs prices and, and uh, interferes with, the, it makes them inaccurate conveyors of information. The, other, the next point of inf important information is the accuracy of accounting statements. It's as central to the functioning of markets as the pricing of capital. And I've just argued mon monetary shocks interfere with the pricing of capital. Accountancy failed to detect the overstatement of asset values on the books of financial instit uh, institutions. And many believe, and I think correctly, that accounting statements today for financial institutions still contain large elements of fiction. Now, um, a lot has been said about already this morning uh, about leverage and how leverage is really more important. And it is at the end of the day because the thing about an asset bubble is those values aren't sustainable. So the assets go away and all you're left with is the liability side of the balance sheet. That's why the liability side is more important. But the two go together. I've never heard of an asset bubble that wasn't fueled by leverage and I've never heard of somebody taking on leverage other than of the kind we've seen of biblical proportions than to uh, borrow to fuel an asset bubble. Now the next, so we've got all sorts of informations on which market economies rely that have to be tolerably accurate. Not perfect, but tolerably accurate, not systematically inaccurate. So now we have prices and accountancy going awry. The next is a familiar story, the credit rating agencies. The, the story, I think we all know, it's the why, and I'm not convinced that we've got the why yet, but Credit rating firms did once operate in competitive markets, and their wealth depended, at least in part, on their reputation. That is, the capital value of their firms, was, of a credit rating firm, is largely its reputation. They now operate, however, as government-mandated oligopolies. 
1975, the SEC implemented the nationally recognized rating organization category. Money managers, money market funds, and others had to make use of the ratings of the three agencies, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch. Then the Credit Rating Reform Act of 2006 tightened their grip on the market. Ed Kane has argued that, in effect, the Securities and Exchange Commission delegated to the credit rating agencies supervision over securitization. Instead of relying solely on profits from competitively supplied services, the agencies earned rents from shared monopoly power. Whether this institutional change alone can explain the massive grade inflation for mortgage-backed securities remains a subject of debate, but certainly the inflated credit ratings of mortgage-backed securities helped facilitate the housing bubble. Now, after I wrote, or at the very end, and I inserted a little notation on this in the paper, I discovered that this process had actually begun in the 1930s with bank regulators requiring that national banks, and then eventually all banks, use credit rating agencies. But actually, people knew what the bias was, and they, and they worked around the bias. They had evolved a system for working around the bias, which institutionally was forgotten and lost. And so when this thing excelled, when this things happened and uh, what just went through, um, the markets weren't doing what they were doing in the 30s to discount the bias. Basically, what the markets did in the 30s is they averaged the ratings, and the average of the ratings was a better predictor than any one of the ratings. Okay, so <clears throat> actors need to rely on information transmitted by price and non-price signals. Those information flows are necessary conditions for achieving plan compatibility, particularly among intertemporal plan compatibility and particularly in our new global economy. Um, in the housing boom, prices were distorted by the effects of monetary policy on interest rates. We now have an accounting profession whose goal is adherence to rules rather than truth-telling. There is an overarching principle in accounting that accounting statements must fairly and accurately portray the financial position of a company. In practice, however, the adherence to rules immunizes accountants from legal consequences of their bad opinions. And we have a credit rating process that, for whatever reason, became positively giddy in its assessment of housing-rated securities. I, I don't – it's now purely formal. Uh, certain institutions have to use these credit rating agencies. But if you talk to people, they're doing their own credit rating because nobody believes this stuff anymore. Uh, the market's mechanisms for conveying information about asset values, company profits, and credit risk cease to convey accurate information. Instead, they report inflated values for assets and the value of firms owning such assets. Plus, they understated the risk of those assets. Distorted prices, misleading accounting, and inflated credit ratings produced what I described in a piece I wrote for the Wall Street Journal as an economy of liars. We all just started lying to each other. I summarized thus far that information failures led to coordination failures. Now, I am – how long do I have? You have seven minutes. Okay. Left. Turn briefly to the housing market. Now, we all know the story of Franny and Fetty. F Franny. Fanny and Freddie. <laughs> Fanny and Freddie. And I'm not going to belabor that, except to tell Jerry Jordan that I discovered yesterday at a lunch – People are not planning to make these things go away, but they're planning how they can be reformed and kept because the mortgage industry wants them. 
And I asked, why does the mortgage industry have to have these things? And they said, well, because it's such a large part of the credit market. These things are securitized. It's really securitizers that want them. And uh, they have to sell this stuff all over the world. I said, you mean the Chinese have told us that the federal government has to guarantee the mortgage securities they buy? Yes, that's, that's why they have to stay. Okay, so they're not going away. But they're only part of a much broader policy that no one is really questioning, except Jerry Jordan, and that is the promotion of home ownership. Home ownership has come to take on the aspects of an entitlement. And there were all sorts of programs, not just the GSEs, but all sorts of subsidies. And the one thing we know about subsidies, if you subsidize something, you're going to get too much of it. The Bush administration was committed to affordable housing. I have a quote in the paper. If I hadn't told you who said it, you'd think it was Barney Frank, but it was a senior official in the Bush administration. So <coughs> I think that this whole policy of housing, promoting home ownership, has to be reconsidered. Uh, I asked some Swiss friends about home ownership in Switzerland, and they said, well, two-thirds of the people in Switzerland don't own a home. They rent. Now, this is a stable democracy, very similar to our own. So the idea that something about home ownership is required is beyond me. I want to finish up on regulation because this seems to be uh, the fallback position. Uh, monetary policy can't regulate these bubbles, uh, so we're going to have to have uh, new kinds of regulation. I go through the arguments against regulation, not the philosophy of is regulation good or bad, but simply why regulation fails on its own merits. And the first thing is, thank you, the first thing is regulatory capture, which everybody seems to have forgotten about public choice. And if there's an industry in which the regulation has been captured by the industry, I don't think there's one more that fits the public choice model better than financial services regulation. The regulators identify with the interests of the industry rather than the public it's supposed to protect. The second reason that regulation cannot succeed on its own, merit, uh, on its own terms is that especially in, the, in, in something like financial services, which is very complex, uh, you, you can't staff the regulatory agencies with people that have the expertise that can understand the products. If they can really understand them, they can produce them, and their salary is five times more if they leave the regulatory agency and go to the industry. I, in the 90s, the OCC, the Office of Control of the Currency, was trying to hire lots of young whiz kids out of business school who understood derivatives, and they lost all of them to Wall Street. Finally, regulation suffers from what I call the Hayek knowledge problem, the informa information that regulators need to regulate successfully exists in dispersed form throughout the industry being regulated, and the individuals possessing that information not only have no incentive to communicate it to the regulators, they have an incentive to communicate misinformation to the regulators. There are possible ways to address some of these problems, but as I discuss in my paper, there's no uh, uh, stomach for them among either Congress or the regulators which I think goes back to the regulatory capture issue. Congress, of course, too, is captured. Okay, so I argue that regulation is inevitably going to fail on its own terms, particularly regulation of something as complex as financial services. Maybe it works for generation of electricity, although Enron suggests that's not so true anyway. Now, the way forward um, is very briefly out discussed in the paper, and I'll be even briefer here, partly, again, because Jerry Jordan talked about it, 
it's time not for just tinkering with the existing model, but for thinking about what a new model might be. And uh, I think that, I hope that is going to be the topic for the Cato Monetary Conference next year, although I have a feeling we're already edging into discussing it at this one. Thank you. I finish. You, you can grab me if I do something bad. Good morning. Um, let me get the disclaimer out of the way. My name is Adam Posen. I am an external member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. Nothing I say has anything to do with anyone else on that committee, uh, as will probably become evident. Um, and the, the, um, the thing about being, as many of the people sitting here already know, the thing about being a sitting voting central banker is you actually largely have to stick to the text you write. So I think I will be uh, pretty brief um, because I wrote intentionally a very focused short text. Um, I'm going to give Jim a lot more when the publication comes out. Um, the text is actually going to be available now on the Bank of England and other websites if you're interested. Um, Carmen my new colleague and dear friend, um, spoke about arrogance and ignorance in central banking and monetary policy. I'm here to speak for ignorance. Um, uh, I, I've done arrogance on other occasions. Um, and what I'm going to try to do is talk about ignorance in a very focused way. Um, essentially, I, I give Jim a lot of credit because there's a lot of themes that are coming out from all of our talks and I've looked at some of the other papers in the conference and Dr. O'Driscoll made sort of the similar reference at the end of his remarks. I'm actually, I was written a paper that's on the sort of leaning against the wind idea that many people apparently outside of this room seem to think is the way to go and I'm very comforted to hear that there are so many people in this room and so many papers at this conference who are emphasizing other things, and I think you'll take my paper or my argument in that line. So the question I wanted to answer today is do we, need to, do we know what we need to know in order to lean against the wind? And the answer is we don't, hence my claim for ignorance. Um, but one final thing, not just a disclaimer, I really am pleased to be here. I, my other job is at the Peterson Institute just up Massachusetts Avenue, and this conference has annually produced some very exciting discussion, and it's a great thing for me to be part of this community and get to participate in it. Um, now, outside this room of thoughtful people, the tenor of the times following the global crisis is to sort of take the extreme premise of this session's title as given. That is, monetary policy is the cause of bubbles. We should try to use monetary policy to prevent bubbles. We should prevent monetary policy from causing bubbles. And as the BIS mafia has put it repeatedly, uh, you should lean against the wind. Um, I, I'm going to make one ridiculing remark about that, and then we'll get into substance. The reason they call it lean against the wind is because if you ever confront them, as I or my colleague on the Bank of England, Deputy Governor Charles Bean, has done, and say, well, do you want us to raise interest rates 300 basis points overnight? They always say, no, 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 I don't really want to do that. Well, what do you want us to do? I want you to just sort of lean against the wind. So we all know how important the wind is. Um, 
<clears throat> anyway, to, to be a little more serious about it, as I argued in a speech last year, if you want to lean against the wind, if you want to target asset prices, with monetary policy, three assumptions have to hold, or rather if you want to do it and be successful at it. First, you have to assume that central bankers can identify asset price booms or busts and bubbles in real time, ahead of time, well enough that you can act on it. Second, you have to have tools that will allow you to act on it, that when you move your interest rates or your narrow central bank money actually will affect the prices you care about. And third, you have to make a welfare assessment that whatever costs and side effects of doing all that outweigh, are outweighed by what you're preempting. Now, there is a tendency following the crisis to take all three of these as obvious, whereas, in fact, all three of them are not yet established. And I would argue that the first two, at a minimum, are very questionable. Now, I've done a lot of writing in the past, as have others, about the second assumption, the idea that monetary policy tools don't really give you the instruments to get after asset prices. Uh, there's a bunch of references in the paper. Carmen and Vincent's paper, the one she just gave today, is a new edition, which I think is very useful to that literature, pointing out that, as you would expect, if you'd stop to think about it, movements in short-term instrument interest rates should not have a lasting effect on asset prices. And some of the things Jerry O'Driscoll was just saying follow in that vein. More recently, in a speech I gave in Belfast last month, the glories of being a Bank of England official, um, <laughs> I reminded people that for all the talk about 1980s Japan as sort of the paradigmatic case where monetary ease led to the bubble and lack of tightening didn't prevent it, it actually the facts are completely the opposite. The real estate bubble in Japan had started more than two years before the Bank of, Bank of Japan started cutting rates, and in fact, land prices went up 50% in those two years. When they started trying to raise rates, it didn't do any good against the bubble. It only took a regulatory change. Um, Anil Kashyap and to Takeo Hoshi, among others, have written about this in great detail. But anyway, even that example doesn't fit the paradigm. I also pointed out recently, and I'm just going to say this to get this on the record one more time, there is a lot of chatter now, and this goes to the international flows that Jerry Jordan and Carmen and others have spoken about, that countries like Brazil or Poland or pick your emerging market of note um, with huge capital inflows are facing bubbles they should lean against the wind. This will be suicidal. If they do anything short of a few hundred basis point interest rate increase, they will simply attract more capital inflows and make things worse. But anyway, that's all about this second assumption, as I said, about this idea of do monetary tools actually have the desired effect. First assumption is what I want to talk about today. What I want to challenge today is the validity of this idea that monetary policymakers can correctly identify asset price bubbles and respond to them preemptively, or at least ahead of time. Now, this is something where monetary policymakers, a number of them who even used to be skeptical, seem to switch their positions. So if you go back two years ago to this conference, Don Kong gave a speech here in which he explicitly said, well, I used to think I couldn't identify bubbles, but now I realize you probably can't. And this actually is an example of senior policymakers shifting on this position. That is wrong. Um, it, or rather, it is wrong to do. I realize it's a lot of fun for central bankers to channel the late Justice Potter Stewart and say, I know obscene asset prices when I see them, but I don't think that's the way to make policy. So what I'm going to do, and this is based on joint work in progress I'm doing with two people at the Bank of England, Thomas Hillebrand and Neil Meads, and again, the detailed data and all that will be out with the journal in due course. Um, 
I'm just going to go through some basic facts about booms and busts as we've been able to identify them and point out that the record is much more complicated than people think. And in light of these patterns, it is a very daunting thing to get the call right that when it's time to pop an asset price bubble and when you know an asset price bubble or boom is going on. Now, I want to add that this isn't because I'm convinced that financial markets get prices right all the time. That's not my concern. And nor is it because I don't want, financial, I don't want central bankers to ever make judgments. I, I tend to be more on the rule side than the discretion side than a lot of central bankers, but there's certainly room for judgment. The issue of ignorance here is specific to the nature of asset booms and busts that we simply do not have enough good information in real time to respond. So the first point I want to make is some booms are different. Now, everybody's riffing on Carmen and Ken Rogoff's classic book title. It's my turn to do that. So let me talk about a bit the diversity of various different types of bubbles. And I gather that the second Lawrence White, who's speaking today, is going to talk about this as well from his slides. Um, it turns out that some things that are taken for granted about booms and busts are not true. So it helps to try to have some sort of objective record, at least retrospectively, of what were the busts and the booms, so you can try then to do research on it. So my co-authors and I went out, and we took some data sets, and we essentially took two different methods for identifying asset price booms and busts. So one follows Michael Bordeaux and Olivier Jean, and we said, okay, look at look at sustained deviations from moving averages of, of growth rates. Another one following Charles Goodhart and Boris Hoffman and others. You do a fancier econometric thing and you use a Hodrick Prescott filter and you estimate trends in asset price movements, whatever. I, I'm happy to answer technical questions, so that's not the point today. I'm very glad to be in an auditorium with no PowerPoint screen. It's all very nice. So what we do is we take 17 advanced economies, go back to the early 70s to the present, include the recent times, and look at residential prices, real estate prices, equity prices, identify periods of booms and busts. We come up with two separate lists. Lists are not identical, but they catch, obviously, overlapping. Both of them think there was a boom in Japan in the late 80s, for example. And so the first thing that leaps out at you is if you just do the simple descriptive statistics, looking at these lists, is that not every boom is followed by a bust and not every boom is followed by a crash. So, for example, we identified using one method, the growth rate method, 42 real estate booms and 50 equity booms over this period among these countries. Of these, only 16 of the real estate booms were followed by a bust within two years, and only 12 out of 50 of the equity booms were followed by a bust, a crash in prices over two years. In fact, if you use the other method, you get similar results. You only get equity busts, for example, following booms in 13 out of 51 cases. Now, as a policymaker, you may not care about equity booms and busts per se, so maybe you care about recessions. Turns out you can do the same exercise. It is roughly a quarter or less of cases. It depends specifically which list you look at, whether you look at real estate or whether you look at equity prices. But it never really exceeds a quarter of cases in which even long sustained large equity price or real estate booms are followed by a recession or are followed by an asset price bust. Now, in other words, what goes up need not come down when you're talking about asset prices. Now, for policymaking, this is a very simple point, but it's actually very profound. 
it means if you target asset prices literally and you say, I'm going to keep asset prices from going up, I'm going to respond when there seems to be an excessive boom in asset prices, you're going to be forced to cut off three booms that would not do any harm and inarguably, at least in equity boom cases, sometimes do some good for every one that you preempt. Moreover, as Brad Long has argued, as Rick Mishkin has argued, as I've argued, and I gather Larry White's going to argue, you know, there are differences in some of these booms. Some of these booms are associated with technological changes. Think of Greenspan and the IT boom in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. These are not things you want to casually cut off. So if you're going to do this, you need a lot more information than you currently have to tell you which of these booms are the good ones or the bad ones. You can't just do it on prices alone. Now you can say, well, no one was going to just do it on prices alone. But actually, if you follow the discussion in central banks and the people coming out of the BIS and a lot of the proposals, it was proposed essentially that you do it on asset prices alone. And that is not a straw man, and it is something to avoid. But complicating matters further is just the matter of timing. Again, we have these periods, these, these episodes we identified, so we're able to talk about how long they last, how much appreciation you have in each of these periods. And it turns out that on average, equity booms, absent central bank intervention, generally run about two years. And real estate booms generally run about three years. Now, real estate booms have a much longer tail. Both booms and busts, there tends to be a distribution. There are some that go on forever. Think of the German real estate bust of the 90s post-reunification that goes on for 10 years. But more than half of each type of boom bust is over in two to three years. Now, in our mechanical statistical method, it takes you four quarters just to figure out that you've got a sustained asset price boom. You could say, well, the central bankers are going to be much more clever and they're not going to wait around for that. I think that's a, a, a false hope. I think it would, in fact, be the very opposite of Milton Friedman's dictum that you don't over-fine-tune the economy with monetary policy if you wait only two to three quarters and say, I don't like the looks of that stock market, I'm going to raise rates. So by the time you wait four quarters to decide you're in the midst of a boom, and then it takes you a little while to raise the rates enough to have the effect you want, the boom, more than 50% of the time, would already have been over. So in practical terms, this whole thing just doesn't make any sense. Moreover, if you're really a, a, a leaning against the wind advocate, you can say, well, maybe you're right. Maybe if we did that, we'd be chasing our tail. But in reality, the point is you make a commitment that you're going to pop asset price bubbles, and that deters this behavior in the first place, and you don't have to do this. Now, I'm not quite the macroeconomic historian that Charlie or Carmen are, but I know a little bit about this. The last 40 years of monetary policy making is littered with the corpses of credible central bank commitments <laughs> and their ability to influence um, private sector behavior, let us say. And so if you want to build in place a rule, something like more like an exchange rate peg that says you're going to intervene, then it has to be simple and dumb usually. And that's not going to work very well either. Now, it could be and this is something I'm investigating, that booms that are particularly long are the particularly dangerous ones. And you may want to intervene when you see a boom going on too long. That's worth thinking about. But that's a very different kind of attitude for policy to take than this preemptive lean against the wind when you first see it. Second point I want to make, and I'm coming down to five minutes left, so I think I'll be okay, um, is predicting booms. His BlackBerry is really good. I can even see it from here. Um, predicting booms is easier said than done. 
Now, if it turned out that instead of waiting for the asset prices to move up, you could instead say, well, I know what leads to, leads to asset price booms. I know what leads to bubbles. I'll watch for those ahead of time and react when those happen. Obviously, that would solve the problem. Moreover, if as sort of is the premise that was set out for this topic, that you think monetary policy ease in the first place is the cause of booms, then you're just sort of watching yourself, and you know, we all enjoy doing that. That's fine. But as I've argued and others have argued, and again, Carmen and Vince's latest work seems to be consistent with, monetary ease, whether you measure it by monetary growth, by interest rates, by real interest rates, it doesn't really have good predictive power for asset price movements. Obviously, at the margin, let's not talk about QE2. At the margin, you know, you intervene in monetary policy, you're going to have some short-term effect on asset prices, but that's different than creating a sustained boom. Now, this claim, however, keeps coming up, and so my co-authors and I decided we would take a fresh look at it for purposes of this paper and also just because it's important. So we took inspiration from some work that Carmen did a while ago with Graciela Kaminsky and Morris Goldstein on early warning indicators for financial crises. And we said, okay, let's try to come up with a list of early warning indicators for asset price booms and busts. So we came up with a list of monetary policy attributes and some real factors. And again, I can give you technical details, but essentially what you're doing is you're saying, I create a window, I arbitrarily pick a period of time, a year, two years ahead of when this boom starts or this bust starts, and I look for when a variable is high in that period, if that's correlated with incidents of these booms or busts, as the case may be. And you want something that gives you relatively few false positives and so on. Anyway, there, there's some art to this, but essentially we end up with very robust, broad results, which are none of the monetary variables do you any good as predictors of asset price booms. Let me repeat. None of the monetary variables will predict in a re recurring, dependable, robust way the emergence of asset price booms. The closest you can get is we find some evidence that the change in interest rates particularly for real estate, does matter. Makes sense. Um, but remember, the change is a very different thing than the level of interest rates. And most of this discussion takes place about the idea that it is monetary ease, meaning the level that counts. That's what these Taylor rule comparisons, like the ones that are being presented, are about. Is the level of interest rates right? Well, that may be true in some causal way that is not illustrated by the signaling exercise, but it doesn't show up at least as an indicator. And generally, having something show up as an indicator is a lower hurdle to get over than proving causality, because it just simply has to be correlated. Moreover, even the change in interest rates, central bank interest rates, is not very good as a predictor in absolute terms. It's better in relative terms than all the rest of these things we look at. But it gets you maybe 50% of the time. I really don't want to be swinging a major economy's monetary policy on something that's a coin flip. Now, it turns out, and again, this is consistent with some of the things Jerry O'Driscoll was saying about housing, and I gather that, that, that Charlie Calamiris and Mark Calabria are going to say later, having looked at their papers, you know, there are real factors in the world that do matter. There's regulation is a real factor. It may not be a nice factor, 
but it's a real factor. There's supply issues in the housing market. There are international flows, things Carmen talked about. One measure which we find consistent with the kinds of things Carmen and her co-authors have found in the past is that if you have large current account balance deficits, meaning relative to GDP, meaning large capital inflows, that tends to be associated with booms. But again, that's not a monetary factor, at least not first order. So what might we question now that I've professed ignorance? To my mind, these results, including especially the fact that it's relatively rare to have even asset price booms followed by busts and recessions, should be a reconsideration of this whole leaning against the wind attitude. Moreover, we should not leap to readily think we can identify bubbles in sufficiently quickly time without a number of false positives on the right basis that we can act. The bestiary of booms and busts is a far more diverse animal kingdom than people generally tend to acknowledge. I think, given realistically how long it would take central banks to react, even with the best of, of intentions, it would not be realistic to do this without causing a lot more harm. Last three lines. Uh, the results of our empirical research I've briefly and probably too pointedly put out today obviously have to be subject to refereeing scrutiny and all that. More importantly, other researchers may yet come up with some great indicators for these things that we've failed to do. But until we have that kind of knowledge, central banks should question this even supposedly uncontroversial assumption that they know enough to lean against bubbles, let alone then these other factors that we've all raised about do the tools central bankers have actually work against bubbles. And one cautionary note, which goes in the spirit of some of the things that Jerry and Carmen and others here are saying, is even if you're doing macro, what's called macroprudential policy, you got to think of it in terms of credit and regulation. Think of it in terms of monetary policy and monetary factors is probably not the way to go. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, now there's a uh, at least one uh, microphone. I guess there's another one. So put your hands up. But I'm going to ask the first question because I have control. Uh, <laughs> um, and my question is this. Uh, my sense is that the market does not adequately uh, reward good information. And I want to give you a specific example. In the spring, I think it was the spring of 2008, I made, uh, had a little press notice because I said, Freddie Mac is bankrupt. Yeah. Now, where did that information come from? It wasn't from my careful analysis of Freddie Mac's situation. All I did was to go into Freddie Mac's a published financial statement, and they had a fair balance balance sheet, a fair market, uh, fair value balance sheet. And I said, on the fair value balance sheet that Freddie Mac publishes, they're bankrupt. They had negative net worth, and that produced uh, some effect on the price of the common stock. So why is it? Uh, and I don't know who wants to comment on this, but why is it that the market does not provide better rewards for companies that provide uh, better information? Anybody want to? I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe nobody wants to, wants to discuss that. Okay. I think what we should do, I guess I will recognize and, uh, a speaker uh, and then identify who you are, keep your questions short, and ask uh, the, the person that you're aiming at. Charlie. Charlie Calamiris, a uh, great panel. Um, I 
very much agreed. Uh, this is a question for Adam. I very much agreed with the conclusion uh, that monetary policy is not the right uh, tool to fix these problems and try to react to them. But I wanted to get Adam in particular to talk about a paper that I admire as a way to at least identify the probability of being in a bubble. And it's a paper written by uh, Borio and Drayman at the BIS. Mm. And what they do is they use a dual threshold criterion. So they don't just look at one time series, but they look at the combination of the asset price change and they put a threshold on it. So if, I don't remember the number, but if equity prices grow by more than 20%, say, and credit growth in the economy and the financial system is also growing at a very rapid rate, then they find that's a very, that's a very high signal-to-noise ratio. So I, I'm wondering, well, first, you might not have been aware of it, but it seems to me like that kind of dual threshold, which also brings us back to Carmen's point, which I'm going to raise later in the same way, it, it seems like what we want to be looking at for these very destructive situations are not just when asset prices are booming, but when we're also seeing a lot of credit growth. And that's what I liked about the Borio Drayman paper. Mm-hmm. Um, just quickly, yeah, I had seen that paper, but you're right. I probably didn't give it the reference I should have, and I, I'll correct that. Um, the I think, you know, as you well know, Charlie, there is a trade-off both in operational terms and communications terms when you move from very simple targets to more complicated targets. Now, for you, for me, for the people in this room, the idea of, oh, we have a dual threshold is not that complicated. Um, And in reality, it's something I think even ignorant central bankers like me could operationalize. The, The question is how much advantage... I know you weren't advocating this, but I mean how much advantage... It comes out of a very real practical question. How much advantage could you get by automating that in some way versus just taking the reminder of all of us saying it's credit growth and credit growth interacting with other things that really matter? And speaking as someone now who has to worry about these sorts of things since the Bank of England is constantly communicating, um, the maybe too much, um, <laughs> You know, it, it, it's it's a good question. The thing I would say is Olivier Jean and I separately, among others, have advocated – it's a different way of doing the fiscal redux that Carmen was doing – advocated that some of the way you deal with asset price problems is you have automatic stabilizers and taxes that are not subject to discre- – or fees that are not subject to discretion. And so it's not up to us to, if we really have that robust relationship, for example, you can imagine some sort of counter-cyclical tax in, in the real estate market, since everybody has to pay capital gains and, and title taxes in real estate anyway, and you, you key it specifically to real estate market developments. And it seems to me that that could be a promising avenue to go down. Um, okay. Carmen, go ahead. Yeah, uh, very briefly uh, on what Charlie's comment. Um, I think which my own remarks and my own work is on the emphasis would be on credit or more broadly defined leverage. I think there's the issue of levels and then there's the issue of change. Uh, very briefly, the issue of levels has to do with outright old-fashioned solvency. And the issue of change is that very large increases in debt usually involve reaching out to the marginal borrower. Uh, and so both have information content that are complementary about solvency and quality. 
uh, of the lending rather than, you know, the asset. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, uh, Brian Desolitz. My my question is um, for Mr. Posen. When I look at uh, data after 9-11, it seems to me the, the issue isn't about a new rule. It's about sticking to old rules and that really we had a much quicker recovery after 9-11 than expected. Mm -hmm. But uh, rates were kept low and even decreased after the recovery occurred, mm -hmm. you know, three quarters of growth, and then there were cutting rates. So isn't, isn't, the, isn't the issue more sticking to existing rules rather than trying to create a, a new one? I, I think that's a valid concern to raise. I, I would still go with the new one versus the old one if in putting it in your, in your framework, um, essentially for two reasons. Uh, the first is, as I think Carmen and several others have pointed out, um, or Vince, actually, as much as anybody, that even if we agree that the Fed made an error at that time, and I can't officially say whether they did or not, but were we to agree the Fed was too lax at that point, the size and duration of that error was actually not that large by standards of central bank behavior. If you go back to the Arthur Burns era in the, in the U.S. in the 70s, if you go back to um, things the Bank of England did before it had independence in the 80s, this isn't to make an excuse. This, this is just to say that we, we had monetary policy errors of that scale, if we accept that was an error, recurrently throughout much of the period. It had bad outcomes, but it didn't have outcomes like what we saw in the last few years. So to me, it might have contributed, but that can't have been the factor. The second and related point I would make, and this is something, some additional work I've been doing with Neil Meads and Thomas Hellebrandt, which we didn't put in this paper, um, but we'll be putting out soon, is one thing which we find in our data set, which is similar to things other people have said, but um, through a different method, is that the correlation of booms and busts in the last five years is just historically unprecedented. So if you look at our data set, um, we are able to say across countries over time, you know, when are real estate prices all moving together, when are when in an excessive way, when our equity prices moving together, and we find that the last five years are just orders of magnitude more correlated. And that wasn't monetary policy. Um, it must have been something. I'm not saying monetary policy was great, but it wasn't monetary policy. It must have been something else. And so, again, I think that's why we have to look at something else. Just, just, a, uh, just a very uh, quick observation. Uh, the recovery after the uh, bottom of the recession in 2001 uh, was not very rapid. Uh, employment growth was still very slow in the spring of uh, 2003, a uh, year and a half after the bottom of the recession. Carmen? Uh, just very briefly, 9-11 is a very different animal. 9-11 uh, is an external shock that, you know, there was, was a massive confusion, liquidity loss over the short run. The leverage problem that built up ahead of 2007 and its aftermath is, is it has long, casts a long shadow. We were not, you know, the leverage conditions were very different in those two episodes. And so, you know... 
Okay. Uh, we're not competing with cocktail hour, but we are competing with coffee and the rest of the schedule. Uh, therefore, my responsibility up here is to say that we've got one more question. <laughs> and uh, speaking from the eye of the hurricane, I would like to address my question to Professor Reinhardt. Uh, throughout the middle of the 2000s, 2004, 2005, particularly 2006, what we were seeing was a flood of demand for earnings on the part of investors. Ball was selling at extraordinarily low levels. Returns were insufficient for the investors to meet their earnings targets. And of course, the result was leverage and going down credit. Now, what the regulators did and what the rating agencies did, which I happen to have intimate knowledge of, but I will not share, to accommodate this desire for earnings is what contributed besides government policy encouraging universal housing and CRA and all the other programs. And your point that you made uh, in your speech about the percentage of foreign reserves as a percentage of U.S. GDP, combined with the inflow of oil patch money during the oil boom, to me is a central part of this story. Monetary policy contributed, but I think was a minor part. And I would like Going back to my first question that I asked Jerry Jordan, that it, if, if China had played by the same rules of the game as India had played, that is that they had imported capital, being a capital short country, instead of exported capital, would we have not been in that over would, – wouldn't returns have been high enough so that we would not have had to, to undertake this, these steps which led to uh, distortions in the capital markets? Um, I think the large-scale acquisition by foreign central banks led by China, but not exclusively China, uh, is, is a big part of the story. Uh, but the flip side of that is why are we saving so low? So we had, yes, the incentive of the availability of credit. That, that's, and that's true of crises across time and across boundaries. When you have a lot of, when you're the hot shot from the rest of the world, when you attract for one reason or another credit, and in this case, uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, uh, policy of not floating the, the currency contributed, in my view. Uh, however, there's the flip side of that. Why is our saving rate so low, in addition to having the capacity to borrow? And there, I started also my remarks by saying we have a chronic fiscal problem uh, in which the incentives to save, uh, or more accurately, the incentives to dissave, coupled with their incentives to stabilize the currency and buy U.S. assets, produced a very... Uh, okay, let me make a suggestion. Uh, that conversation can work over coffee, and uh, so we're adjourned uh, for a few minutes for coffee.